Well, tonight we are finishing a 10-part series on the Gospel of John, and we called it The Last Word because the Apostle John really does have the last word about Jesus in the New Testament. His Gospel, his three epistles, his book of Revelation are the final documents of the Holy Scripture. And as he put his pen to paper more than 60 years after the day of Pentecost, John was fully aware that he was the only original voice left. He was the sole surviving elder of the first century. Uh, not only is it 60 years after the day of Pentecost, but it's 30 years after all the other leaders of the New Testament church have been martyred, uh, put to death for the cause of the gospel. So for three decades, he's basically been the elder of the church. And so he really does have, when he sits down and writes in A.D. 92, 93, he really does have the last word on the Lord Jesus. Now John spends the first half of his gospel, chapters 1 through 11, summarizing three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And that section, as we've studied in this series, it begins with a prologue that sets up the revelation that is the foundation for this book. And that revelation is that the word became flesh, that God became a man, that deity took on humanity, that Jehovah of the Old Testament became Jesus in the New Testament. And John sets all that up in his prologue in the first 18 verses of his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And that word was made flesh dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. It was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he ends his prologue by reminding us that no man can see God or hath seen God at any time. The, be, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So the first 18 verses of chapter 1 serve as John's prologue and he ends right where he began. God is a spirit but because the word, the Logos, was made flesh, we can now know the will, the heart, the personality of God, Paul said, in the face of Jesus Christ. So the incarnation is God's declaration of love through Jesus Christ. The next section of John's gospel contains seven signs or seven miracles, and all of them identify Jesus as this word made flesh. It doesn't matter what kind of miracle he's doing, whether he's turning water into wine or healing a nobleman's son, and, and there are seven miracles here. Uh, John is on a quest to let us know that this Jesus has authority over every situation, even the grave, because the last miracle in this section is that he raises Lazarus from the dead. And John also reveals most of the seven I am statements of Jesus in this section, not all of them, but most of them. They are places where Jesus directly claimed to be God, the I am that I am. And John also reveals uh, most of the other places in this section where Jesus indirectly claims to be God by using the Greek term ego I me or I am to refer to himself. This is all pretty much invisible in the English version of the scriptures because we see I am and we think pronoun and verb, but when Jesus said I am, it was something incredibly, uh, wonderfully different. 
He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. But that's not all he said. He also made indirect statements like this. I am the one that speaks to you. I am, so be not afraid. He said that to his disciples when he's walking to them on the water of the sea. If you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. And he said this very puzzling thing to the Pharisees one day. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. He said to them, and it irritated them, before Abraham was, I am. That's not bad grammar. That's powerful revelation. When this has come to pass, he said, you will believe that I am. And he said to his disciples in his last significant conversation with them, I have told you that I am. And so 90% of John's gospel is unique to John. He's very selective about these miracles he records. Most of the miracles he, he writes about are twinned with Jesus' teaching in some way or another. There are no parables in John, but there are many sometimes lengthy conversations. Everywhere, Jesus is identifying, revealing his identity, revealing his will to those who will listen. And John's writing, it's just beautiful, it's powerful. It's my favorite gospel. Um, it has many unique features, such as the 25 times that Jesus says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, or amen, amen. He always uses that double amen to call attention to important revelations, but that only occurs in the gospel of John, nowhere else. See, John is writing a theology of Jesus, not just a biography of Jesus. And so, uh, as we've studied, there's no Christmas story in John's gospel. There's no baby in a manger in Bethlehem. There's no shepherds or wise men or star or angels up in the heavens. Because John knows that the birth of Jesus Christ was well covered by Matthew and Luke when they wrote their account of the gospel some 30 years earlier. And John also knows this, that the truth of the incarnation has been preached and believed by the New Testament church even longer than that for six decades now. So this is maybe one of the most important things we covered in this series. On this and many other doctrines, John makes an assumption. He assumes that his readers already know what Jesus and his church preached and practiced. It is critically important. We've taken 10 weeks to bear down on this. It is critically important to read the gospel of John as the last word, to understand that John's writing comes after the gospels, that John's writing comes after the book of Acts, that John's writing comes after the New Testament epistles, not before them. And one of the illustrations we used was the most familiar Bible verse maybe in the world, John 3.16. No preacher in the New Testament ever quoted John 3.16. No preacher in the New Testament that we know of ever preached the words and the phrases of John 3.16 because it wasn't written until A.D. 90-something. 
but they turned the world upside down with another scripture you might know, and that's Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And, and so we need to read the gospel of John as the last word. Simple history tells us that. The first half of John's gospel ends with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the last of the seven signs, and that results in the plotting of the Sanhedrin to put Jesus to death. And then John spends the last half of his gospel, chapters 12 to 21, summarizing the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. This section spends five full chapters, 13 to 17, detailing just one conversation between Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper. And then, brothers and sisters, it's so amazing. Prophetically, the entire Gospel of John, and in fact, the entire Bible, points to Calvary. And Jesus speaks often in John of his death, burial, and resurrection. And aren't we glad that Calvary is the centerpiece of our church and our doctrine and our belief and our faith. In John chapter 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In chapter 12, he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He said to them in John 3, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up everywhere. The scripture of John is pointing toward Calvary. Chapter 12, Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. I know we love that scripture as a worship verse, and that's good, but watch this. This he said, signifying what death he should die. He would be lifted up on the cross, and in that act, of, of execution, something miraculous would happen. Redemption would come out of an execution. And today, he draws all men unto him because he died on Calvary. John 8 and 28, this is where he got into an argument with the Pharisees. He said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, on that day when you crucify me, then shall you know that I am the word he is in italics. It's not there in the original. On that day you're going to know that I am and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And then he says to his disciples, now I tell you before it comes. I'm going to tell you all this before it happens so that when it has come to pass, you can look back and you will believe that I am. That's Calvary. The, the webs and the, the rivers and the streams of prophecy all converge on the cross. Prophetically, everything converges at the cross as Jesus is crucified at Golgotha, called the place of the skull just outside the city of Jerusalem. It is the highest point of Mount Moriah. As you might remember, it is the point where Abraham offered his son Isaac in Genesis 22. It's the point where David offered a costly sacrifice that averted God's judgment in 2 Samuel 24. It's the same mountaintop where Solomon built a glorious temple to honor the Lord, 2 Chronicles 3. 
And it's the same mountaintop where the prophet Jeremiah sat in a cave and lamented over Jerusalem's destruction in Lamentations 3. So geography and history converge together at Calvary, at that mountaintop on Mount Moriah. But it's not just geography and history that come together at the cross. Dozens of prophecies given over hundreds of years uttered by prophets who had never even witnessed a crucifixion. Now they converge at Calvary. And it's not just that. Thousands of sacrifices offered by countless priests over all the centuries, they all point ahead to one perfect sacrifice and all their prophecies are now fulfilled in Jesus. And the final confirmation, the capstone of all this prophecy and all this history and all this geography, the final capstone fulfilling the words of Jesus himself when he said on the day that you lift up the Son of Man, on that day you're gonna know that I am. Well, that final confirmation comes from a very unlikely source. It comes from the man who condemned Jesus to die. His name is Pontius Pilate. And we talked about this last week. Pilate wrote a title and he put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And that title over Jesus' head then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. It was written in three languages, a trilingual inscription, Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Hebrew for the Jews, Greek for the Greeks, Latin for the Romans. And then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, don't write it that way. Don't write the king of the Jews. Change it, Pilate. Alter the wording. Write that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate looked back at them and said, no, what I have written, I have written. When you see prophecy converge, it's an amazing thing. It is Pilate himself the man who crucifies Jesus, who gives that final order, it is that man who writes this inscription for the cross of Jesus. In three languages, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And it's just another tombstone epitaph to the Greeks and the Romans. But the Bible is very specific on this point. As many of the Jews began to gather, and as they began to read the inscription over this Galilean, the chief priests suddenly saw that they had a problem. And they rushed to Pilate and they say, don't write it that way, the king of the Jews. Change it, Pilate. Alter your inscription. Write, he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate denies them. What I have written, I will not change one bit. And we talked about this last week. I want to remind you, this is the problem that upset these scholars of the law. Because for three and a half years of his earthly ministry, Jesus has been walking around their streets in their cities and villages and towns using the I am name of God to refer to himself. I am that I am. He's been using that name of God, Yahweh. He's been using that in reference to himself. And now on this day when they lift him up, written over Jesus' head in Hebrew, is Yeshua Hanazari Vemelech Hayehudim, Hebrew, reading from right to left. 
And for the Jewish leaders, when they see that, they understand that this is a condemning epitaph to them because the first letter of each of those words, and we talked about it last week, how they would study the first letter of verses and the first letter of words and and look for the patterns of the word of God. When they saw that inscription over the head of Jesus, they saw something we would never see in English. They saw Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, the four letters of the holy name of God, Yahweh. And it's even more beautiful and more powerful when we consider that tetragrammaton, that four letter name of God because each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is associated with an image. Yod is always associated with hand. Hey is associated with a window and given the significance of behold. Vav is always associated with a nail. And so the astounding thing that apparently nobody had ever seen until this moment was that hidden in the name of God from the very moment he revealed it to Moses at the burning bush was the message of Calvary. Behold the hand, behold the nail. Jesus was the lamb, not slain uh, in AD 30 or 33. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So on that day, as prophecy converged at the cross and history and geography converged at the cross, all around the cross of Calvary creation spoke very loudly the sun darkened and the earth shook and the rocks split and the graves opened and the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom all around the cross creation spoke but over top of the cross the word of God couldn't help it the word of God revealed who Jesus was behold the hand behold the nail encoded in the name of God, Y-H-V-H, Yahweh was on that cross in a body of flesh. Now, if that doesn't excite you at this time of the year, especially when we're about ready to go into a month celebrating the incarnation, I don't know what would turn your crank and light your fire and... Thank you for the golf clap. I love that. That's very nice. I wish somebody would lift up a shout of praise to the Lord who came to this earth, gave himself for us. That wasn't a carpenter on that cross. That was God in a body of flesh who came to earth for us. He gave his life for us. He shed his blood for us. The reason the blood of Jesus can cleanse your sin is that wasn't ordinary human blood. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, you guard the church of God. It was purchased with the blood of God. If you've been cleansed by his blood, I wish you'd lift up praise to him. Oh, that's pretty good praise. That's probably even good Wednesday night average praise. But I wish you'd lift up a praise to the Lord who loved you enough that he split human history in half and he came to earth to give his life on the cross of Calvary. Oh my, thank you, Jesus. And it doesn't stop at the cross because... In John chapter 20, John records that Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. She comes to the grave 
to give honor to the body of Jesus because it was such a hurried thing. They took him down from the cross and they had to uh, prepare him for burial very rapidly because the Sabbath was approaching. And so now she stands on the first day of the week without the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and she looked into the sepulcher. I've been there several times and I've done the very same thing that she did on that day. She stooped down. When you go to the garden tomb, you can walk in the first chamber. They call that the weeping chamber or the mourning chamber. And then as you walk in, you look to the right. They've got a gate there now so people can't go into that sacred space. But as you look to the right through an archway, there are two flat stone beds. Um, that was the tomb that Jesus borrowed for that weekend. He didn't own that tomb. And Jesus' body was laid on one of those uh, flat stone beds. Um, it, it seems like it's the one, as you look, uh, it seems like it was the one on the, the left because it was prepared hurriedly. Uh, in fact, Jesus, we think, must have been tall because um, it was a certain length of slab and the walls come down, but they had hollowed out a little place at his feet because it would be disrespectful to a body to lay them there and their knees be bent even slightly. So somebody rapidly, hurriedly had carved out a little place so that whatever body was in there could lay out flat. And when Mary came on that morning, she looked in and the Bible says she saw two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. I've been in that spot and stood looking at that stone slab enough times to imagine that so vividly in my memory. That in that tomb, when she went into that weeping chamber, first of all, she's shocked out of her wits that she doesn't have to have anybody help her to roll the stone away because it's been moved. She can't imagine what's going on. And then she walks in and she looks to the right and she sees that stone bed on the left and, and that's where the body of Jesus had been hurriedly laid by his mourning disciples. And when she looks there, she doesn't see the body of Jesus. She sees two angels robed in white, one at the head and one at the feet, facing each other over that stone slab. And what Mary saw on that Easter morning, what she saw on the first day of the week was the place that Jesus had lain. Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. In his body was the same presence, the same Shekinah glory that had dwelt between the two carved angels on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And when she looked in there on that Easter morning, she saw the most familiar silhouette in all of Hebrew theology. She saw a representation of the Ark of the Covenant. Two angels sitting, facing each other over that flat slab. That only happens in one other place in Jewish theology. So what's going on that she would see that on Easter Sunday morning. Here's what's going on. She looks in there and that was the place where the Shekinah glory of God had laid in that body of flesh. The reason Jesus could come out of the grave on his own power was because that was God in that body of flesh. He was the glory of God. He was the Shekinah presence of God. He was the spirit that dwelt between the angels on the ark 
of the covenant. And so it's all coming to, to, to fruition. It's all converging in that place. He was more than just a man and he was more than just a prophet. Jesus was exactly who he said he was. He was almighty God. When Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection, he makes three prophetic statements over them. All three of them are not fulfilled at the moment he says them, but they will be fulfilled as the church begins on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. Here are his three prophetic statements over his disciples. Then said Jesus to them again, this is after his resurrection, peace be unto you as my father hath sent me, here's his first prophetic statement, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them his second prophetic statement, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And then his third prophetic statement, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. So here are the three prophetic statements Jesus speaks over his disciples and by extension, he speaks them over us, his church. First of all, even so send I you. I have been sent to save you, but I'm sending you so that others can be saved. And that came to pass in Acts 1. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. The Holy Ghost isn't given to make you feel good, to get you through little rough spots of life. That's all wonderful. The Holy Ghost is primarily given to empower the church to evangelize this world and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. His second prophetic statement, he breathes on them and he says, receive ye the Holy Ghost. That's fulfilled just a few weeks from that moment when they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And finally, his third prophetic statement, not fulfilled at this moment, but it will be fulfilled when the church begins. He says to them, whosoever sins ye remit, they will be remitted. But if you don't do that, if you retain their sins, they are retained. Now, question for you. That sounds very strange to our ears. How in the world would we ever choose to remit or not remit someone's sins? There's one simple answer because the word remission is applied to one specific beautiful action that took place for the first time on the day of Pentecost and it still takes place today when we baptize someone in Jesus' name. The Bible says it's for the remission of their sins. So Jesus gave his church a commission. He said, you need to go and you need to share the gospel. So send I you. And he said, you're gonna need the Holy Ghost to do this. And so he breathed on them and he prophesied they would receive the comforter. But then he said, here's how important it is to get people baptized in my name. Whoever sins you remit, they will be remitted. But if you don't get them baptized in my name, their sins will be retained. I am so grateful, forever thankful to God that I was baptized in the only saving name of the Lord Jesus Christ when I was just 12 years old. I'm so grateful that that is part of my life and my heritage, but it's also part of my future. Every time we share that message, every time we baptize someone, we are partaking in the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. If you'll remit 
forget their sins. If you'll preach baptism and if you'll baptize them, you can have a part in seeing their sins remitted. Is there anybody in this room, you're grateful that your sins are gone? Whoo! My, my, my. John's gospel culminates with that beautiful revelation of doubting Thomas at the end of chapter 20 because when Thomas realizes the significance of a mortal wound in the body of a living man, he combines those two titles, Kyrios, master, with the title of deity, Theos, my maker. He says, you are my master and you are my maker. He gets it. He sees it. He understands it. He gets the revelation. He says, you are my Lord and my God. And Jesus wheeled around to Thomas in that moment and he talked about you, CCC, and he talked about you, whoever is watching this teaching later or tonight live. Here's what he said about us in the 21st century. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But there's another group coming, Thomas. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, there will one day be a group of people who never walk with me in the flesh, but they will walk with me in the spirit. And though they've never seen me like you saw me, they will get the same revelation that you received. They will know that they will know that they will know that I am God manifest in the flesh, that I am the mighty God in Christ that I am the last word from God. They won't have the privilege of walking with me like you did, but they will know me just like you do, Thomas. I'm glad to belong to a church that preaches that revelation. And in chapter 20, John comes to a close and he says, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs are written. I've put these signs together so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Right there, John actually alludes to the structure of his gospel. I have selected certain signs to prove Jesus' identity so that you would believe and so that you would have life through his name. And I just got to say, what a gospel this is. And what a savior Jesus is. Now, this is where preachers got this. You know how preachers, they'll be going along and it's getting a little late and the service has gone on for a while and you just start to have some hope that they're almost done. And then they say, and just one more thing or one more scripture. Well, John, he taught us how to do this because he's got one more chapter. Because now we come to John's epilogue in chapter 21. His gospel would certainly be complete Without this extra postscript, you could end it right there. Many other signs truly did Jesus, but I've written these signs so you could believe. You could end it there. You certainly could end it with Thomas' declaration, you are my Lord and my God. His gospel would be complete without this postscript, but, but these events after the resurrection, apparently to John, they contain important truths, and they all happen to focus on the disciple named Peter. And uh, chapter 21 begins like this. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. So there's, there's seven of them in all. 
Simon Peter's the ringleader, as usual. Simon Peter said unto them, I go a-fishing. And they said to him, well, we're going to go with you. And so they went forth, and they entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. There is a little comic relief running through the Gospels, because have you noticed that the disciples, seven out of 12 are fishermen, and they never catch anything unless Jesus helps them. Have you ever noticed that about the Gospels? Some of that, some of their ancestors, or their uh, descendants, rather, are, are still living. When Peter says, I go a-fishing, He's not saying, I just need a day off. He's saying, I quit. You remember that Peter has not received the Holy Ghost yet. It's been prophesied over him, but it hasn't happened yet. You see, since the resurrection, things have changed so much. He gets up one morning and he decides, I don't want to be a disciple anymore. Jesus isn't walking and talking with us like he did before. He's gone. He's ascended to heaven and it's so different now that Jesus is, is glorified. You never know where or when he's going to show up. And then there are just too many disciples. Jesus has been appearing to disciples over the last few weeks, sometimes up to 500 at a time. I don't like it. This church is getting too big. I liked it better when it was just the 12 of us and we all knew each other. And This is just too much change in too short a time for an old-fashioned fisherman to handle. And so Peter convinces six of the other disciples to join him, and their quest is not a success to say the least. They had been fishing all night, but they had caught absolutely nothing. They had quit hoping, and they had settled down to accept the status quo. They had gone back to their old lives. They're now fishing for fish instead of what Jesus said about them, fishing for men. But even when they go back to that old life and they try to do it, fishing for fish, the methods that had always seemed adequate in the good old days are now coming up empty. There's no fish in their nets. And now Jesus, <laughs> the carpenter, calls to them from the shore, telling the fishermen what they should do. Jesus calls and he asks a question that irritates. Children, have you any meat? Do you have any fish? And they have to admit, no, Jesus, our method isn't working. And then comes the even more irritating command, I need you to change your method. Cast your nets on the other side. And so he says, cast the net on the right side of the ship and you will find it. Here's what the Bible says. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of the fishes. Now, something is buried in here that is so important that John, after he concludes his gospel at the end of chapter 20, he needs to add some things as a postscript. I think it's this. Jesus insisted to his disciples, he's given them an illustration. You need to change your method and you need to change your expectation. And this is somehow so important that John tacks this story onto the end of his gospel. And the message is this, cast your nets on the other side. And the Bible says that Simon Peter, always the ringleader, he went up, he drew the net to land full of great fishes and 150 and three, and for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Because they were so desperate for things to be different, 
the disciples reluctantly took Jesus' advice. And when they took Jesus' advice, cast your net on the other side, the outcome was beyond anybody's imagination. Two miracles happened on that day. First, they caught more fish than ever before. And second miracle, their net didn't break. See, I think what's going on here in John 21 is Jesus is reminding them of their calling. You shall be fishers of men. Remember, it was after an earlier night of fishing with absolutely no results. That was when he originally called them to be his disciples. They were called out of their old lives not to be fishers of fish, but to be fishers of men. So I think Jesus is reminding them of their calling. But I think John records this for another reason in AD 92 or 93. I think John is letting Jesus remind all of us of our calling too. We are called to be fishers of men. And God wants to give his church a two-fold miracle. He wants us to get ready for new methods, for new outreaches, for new approaches, and for many new people to be added to his kingdom. So Jesus' command to us is the same as it was in John 21 to them. Cast your nets on the other side. Shake it up. Wake it up. Do something more, something different, something more intensely than you've ever done before. The first miracle when we obey is that our nets are going to be overflowing with fish. I still believe what pastor has been preaching to us over the last year I still believe that the greatest days of CCC are yet ahead. They're not in our rear view mirror. They're ahead on the road to revival. The first miracle is going to be that our nets will be overflowing with fish but there's another miracle. The second miracle is equally important. God is going to supernaturally strengthen the same nets that we've always used so that they won't break in this time of increased ingathering. See, here's what I see. It may take a new method to reach this generation, but it will be the same message that reached every generation since the day of Pentecost. It'll be the same net. It'll be the same message, supernaturally empowered. So we need to let the method, just hold that very loosely. If methods change in succeeding generations, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We're trying to reach a new generation with an old message. But here's the second miracle. That old gospel, that old message, that old preaching, that old word of God. You don't have to change your net to reach a new generation. It's the very same net that you've used before. It's familiar, but it's ever new. It's familiar, but it's ever powerful. It's familiar, but it never loses its effectiveness. So the word from John to us tonight is cast your net on the other side. Get looking around for some new water to put that old gospel into. Oh my goodness. Huh. My, my, my. Let me hasten because you're watching for my uh, epilogue here. John chapter 21. So when they had dined, they come to the shore. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he said to him, no doubt head hung down, very emotional. 
Yea, Lord, you know that I love thee. He said unto him, Well then, feed my lambs. And he said unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He said unto him, No doubt head hung down, maybe tears in his eyes. Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he said unto him, Well then, feed my sheep. We don't know how much time elapses here, but he says unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because Jesus said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love thee. And Jesus said unto him, well, feed my sheep. Why does Jesus ask Peter the same question three times? Because Peter had denied Jesus three times. Jesus had called him Cephas, a rock, in John 1.42, but now he reverts back to his old name, Simon. It's not because he's condemning Peter. It's because he's given him a chance to begin all over again. And because Peter had placed himself above the other disciples, he thought he was braver and bolder than they were. He said, I will lay down my life for thy sake. And because he had placed himself above the other disciples, the first time Jesus asked that question, he says, Simon, you love me more than these? You really love me more than all these other disciples? See, because of his failure, Peter is now a much more humble man. He's no longer playing the comparison game with all the other disciples. And that restoration, that humility, that submission, yes, that breaking, it must happen if God is going to use Peter to preach the gospel to the Jews in Acts 2 and the Samaritans in Acts 8 and the Gentiles in Acts 10. If God's going to use Peter to be a leader in the New Testament church, there has to come a humbling and a breaking. And that's why Jesus says to Peter three times, Really, do you love me? Well, if you do, you make my church the center of everything you do. You feed my sheep. And then he says something to Peter that's very, very difficult. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when you were young, you girded yourself and you walked wherever you wanted to go. But when you get older, Peter, they will stretch forth thy hands. Thou shalt stretch forth thy hands. Another shall gird thee. They will bind you and they will carry you to a place where you don't want to go. And John's very clear here. This spake he signifying by what death Peter should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Jesus just prophesied something awful. He just prophesied that Peter will be taken somewhere he doesn't want to go and he will be bound and his hands will be stretched forth and he will die. He just prophesied that Peter will be crucified, that he will give his life for the gospel. And then Jesus simply says one final time, follow Peter will very soon discover that preaching the gospel can result in persecution. And he will ultimately discover that serving Jesus can result even in death. And as he faces the trial of his faith, he has the same question, the same frustration, 
the same hesitation, the same distraction, the same confusion, the same objection that all of us have when we're faced with something, a situation that's difficult, hard on our emotions, hard on our spirit, and we can't see the end of it and we're scared of the outcome. Peter has the same objection and the same question that all of us have when we can't see the end of the trial and we're scared of the outcome. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John, the writer of this book. He sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and, and he said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? That's back when John was close to Jesus at the Last Supper. He said, who's the one that's going to betray you? So this says, identified John specifically. Peter turns around and he sees John. Peter seeing him saith to Jesus, Lord, you've told me what's going to happen to me. You've told me the trial of my faith that I'm going to walk through. You've told me of this horrible death that I'm going to die for the sake of the gospel. Lord, I just got one question. Lord, what shall this man do? What about John? And Jesus said unto him, if I will that he tarries till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. See, that's his question. Don't be too judgmental about Peter because it's been your question and my question too. Jesus, what about John? Will he have to suffer? Will he have to die? Will he be persecuted? Will he be crucified? Jesus, I'll do this for you if everybody else has to do it. I'll endure it if everybody else has to endure it. Jesus, are you really looking for me to do more and to endure more than other people? You see, Peter's looking for fair, but Jesus is looking for faith. And I would say to you tonight, when life seems to conspire against you and you walk through deep, dark valleys, you walk through dark nights of the soul, you pray, but it doesn't seem that you get an answer. You look ahead and you're filled with fear and consternation. And it looks like other people are more favored, more blessed, that they get more answers to their prayers. And you've got all kinds of questions. And your question, the big question is, Jesus, what about John? Jesus, what about them? Why do they have it easy when I don't? Why do they seem to get their prayers answered when I don't? And Jesus' answer settles the question for Peter. If I want John to live a comfortable life until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. You serve me. You obey me. And Peter... You just leave everybody else to me. Their path isn't your problem. Their ministry isn't your responsibility. Their blessing isn't your business. And their cross isn't your concern. You leave them with me and you follow me. That's the word of God at the end of the gospel of John. You leave them to me. You follow me. There's an old song that we used to sing in the church. It says, some through the water and some through the flood. Some go through the fire, but we all go through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season 
and all the day long. I don't know what you're going to walk through. I would probably try to prevent it because I love you. And in doing so, I would undo God's purpose in your life. Because sometimes there's a great blessing in the long term through short-term pain. Sometimes prayers that we've prayed that we don't even see an answer to. Oh, this church knows this. That after somebody's dead and gone and in the grave, their backslidden son or daughter, grandchild, walks into an auditorium like this and comes back to God, prays through for the first time. And we all celebrate on that day, but they lived their life and they died and we had their funeral and they never got to see that prayer answered. But the point is, you leave everybody else to me. You have faith in me. You obey me. You serve me. You pray to me. You be faithful to me. You follow me. What about John, Jesus? John's my concern. Peter's your concern. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things. John says, I can tell you for a fact that this is all true. I can tell you for a fact what Jesus said to Peter and what Jesus said to me. I can tell you for a fact who Jesus really was and what happened at his crucifixion and what happened after his resurrection. This is the disciple which testified of these things. And he wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did. The which, if they should be written, every one. If you could write down every little thing that Jesus did and every miracle he did. I only selected seven miracles in the main part of my gospel. I only selected a handful. But if we could write down every miracle Jesus did and everything he said and every life he touched and every person he redeemed, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. John's gospel is effective, but it's also selective. All of the events and the conversations and the miracles he records occupy only 25 days of Jesus' ministry in the first half of the gospel, plus one week of Jesus' life in the last half of the gospel. So John writes down only 32 days out of the 1,280 days of Jesus' earthly ministry. None of Jesus' parables are recorded by John, only a handful of his miracles. So you say, well, maybe that's what he means. If John only recorded 32 days out of 1,280 days, maybe that's what he means, that you know, if we wrote down everything Jesus did, all the world couldn't contain the books. But I think John intends much more than that. Because you remember, brothers and sisters, at the end of this little series, John has the last word on Jesus. He writes 60 years after the day of Pentecost. Whew. By the time he writes those words, Jesus has been doing miracles for thousands and thousands of people in the first century church for over 60 years. All of the healings that have been done through the hands and the ministries and the prayers of the apostles and the early Christians, all of those, they don't get the credit for that. Jesus gets the glory for that because Jesus did it through them. It wasn't the apostles that gave that lame man his ability to walk at the gate of the temple 
They said, I don't have silver and gold such as I have. What do you have? I've got a relationship with Jesus. So I'm going to put you in contact with Jesus. It wasn't Peter and John that strengthened the legs of that crippled man at the temple gate. That was Jesus already gone to heaven, already ascended and glorified, but now in his church through the power of the Holy Ghost. So when John says, if we could write everything he did, the world itself wouldn't even contain the books. But it's more than that because the church has carried on now for 2,000 years and it's still going on strong tonight all around the world. So anytime you ever hear of anybody receiving the Holy Ghost, anytime you ever hear of a little baby being healed from certain death and restored, every time you ever hear of somebody being brought back from a life of sin and restored to faith. You remember something. If you could write down everything that Jesus has been doing for 2,000 years, you couldn't put it in enough books. It would more than fill every bookshelf in every library on this planet. And Jesus is at work in our lives. And so at the conclusion of this series and at the conclusion of John's gospel, if you believe that you are one of those miracles that Jesus has done, and if you believe that he deserves all the credit for the miracle of your life and your faith, I would like you to rise in a standing ovation of praise and worship. Stand to your feet. Let your hands keep going and then let your voice keep going above your hands. Your voice is the most important part of your praise. Lift up Jesus in this room. There are miracles in this room. Miracles of deliverance, miracles of restoration, miracles of healing. Oh, thank you, God. Oh, thank you, God. Oh, thank you, God. Jesus gave Peter a second chance. When I look around this room, I'm looking at some people that Jesus gave you a second chance. You didn't deserve it. He could have written you off, but you're here tonight worshiping him. And if the world was making available every bookshelf, you couldn't put all the miracles Jesus had done in all of those books. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your gospel. What a gospel. That you loved us enough to leave streets of gold and gates of pearl and walls of jasper and angelic choirs and a holy city. You loved us enough to come to this earth and humble yourself, empty yourself. You were the word made flesh. And God, those prophetic statements that John recorded, they still echo over us. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. God, how many times have we seen that happen? That was your prophecy over us. God, it's your will 
that we are sent like you were sent. It's your will that we love like you loved. It's your will that we reach like you reached. And I pray, God, there would be such a challenge from your spirit and from your word that would settle over the lives of your people. Just honor him for a minute. Just pray for a minute, would you? Just pray for a minute. Someone said that the average church member has been preached to up to here and they've obeyed up to here. And the difference between them is condemnation because we know, but we don't do. We know, but we don't go. We know, but we don't witness. We know, but we don't share. We know. And I pray that this series has been more than just information on a gospel that I love. I pray that somehow it has motivated you and motivated this church. Because if the gospel remains locked up in a leather-bound book, it doesn't do much for people that will never pick up that book. But if that gospel ever gets into you and you ever decide, I'm going to share that gospel... So send I you. It's the message that propelled people that we honor and esteem like Bill Drost and Benny DeMerchant and so many others to leave friends and family and home and go to foreign nations with foreign languages and spend their lives. But it's not just for missionaries, it's for every one of us. So send I you as the Father hath sent me. So send I you. I'm finished. Would you lift up your hands one more time? There's still a breaking that needs to happen in prayer in this room tonight. I'm very aware of that. I hope we can get there. I think we'll get there if you'll lift your voice without fear or favor or distraction and resist any opposition and just lift up your voice. There is a commission. There is a sending. There is a sending that wants to settle on the people of God tonight. Hey, Rabolo.